Well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We have learned over the last couple of months that God created Adam and Eve in the divine image of God. That upon them was stamped the image and likeness of their creator. And God placed, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, God placed Adam under a covenant of perfect obedience. And that covenant focused primarily on one prohibition from eating of the tree, that one of the trees that was in the center of that garden sanctuary. And as we saw, and I hope that you saw, a better state of existence was offered to Adam in that test, in that promise. He could have been confirmed there in the state of innocency had he obeyed. And yet we know that Adam sinned and fell short of glory. Man, as we consider uh, the image of God, man is the only moral creature. The only creature that God has made that's been given the capacity for worship, for communion with the Lord, and obedience to His Creator. It, man is inescapably made in the image of God. Every, all the time we are reflecting God, whether in a distorted sense or in a faithful sense, but it is who we are. We've been created in the image and likeness of our Creator. And before the fall... As God's royal image, man was given certain tasks to fulfill, things to do. We'll call them mandates for the betterment of society and for mankind, and also as a means of imaging and reflecting God in the world. And so today we're going to begin to take up an exposition of these creation mandates that we find in the opening chapters. So I'm going to read today from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. So Genesis 1, 26, and this is God's word for his church. And so I exhort you, beloved, to take heed how you receive and hear the word of God. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then chapter 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, 
took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we do come and we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that um, you've given us this wonderful account of our first parents and the commission that you've given them and these creation ordinances. And so we pray, God, as the week has been long and busy and full, as we have burdens for today, as our sleep maybe was lacking last night, as, as all of the things that come up against us, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would overcome them all in this hour. We pray that every thought of our mind would be taken captive in obedience to Jesus that you would give us the strength and the focus to hear your word and to follow you and to trust you, Lord. We pray that every heart in this room, every mind would be open to hear from the word of God. I pray that this day, Lord, we would agree with God, that our minds, our hearts, our wills, our desires, our passions, our lusts, our beliefs, our convictions would be conformed into the revealed will of God. Make us like Jesus. Conform all of us, we pray, into your image. Help us now, we ask, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to consider today, begin to consider today, what have been called the creation mandates or the creation ordinances. I'm going to use those two words, mandates and ordinances, interchangeably at times. I'm saying the same thing, so sorry if that confuses you. Um, I want to think about them firstly broadly and just make some observations as we begin. How should we think about these creation mandates? What are we even talking about here? Um, So I have four thoughts here to begin just to, to think about these mandates broadly. Number one, firstly, these are pre fall decrees that God gave to men. That is, pre you might read someone say pre-lapsarian, before the lapse, before sin or the fall. That means they don't come because of sin or because of redemption, but they come to us because God gives them to us before sin ever entered into the world. Right? So when we read in Genesis chapter 3 that man is going to work by the sweat of his brow, we ought not understand there that work is a product of the fall, But hard work that is toil and troubled is a product of the fall, right? Man was to labor and was to work hard for the glory of God before sin entered into the world. It will now be, as we'll see, frustrated. So these are pre-fall decrees given to men. Secondly, though they will be frustrated by the fall, they remain intact after the fall. And so, yes, sin has come into the world. Yes, marriage is impacted by sin, but it remains, it abides after sin enters into the world. So while these things have been impacted, even to the point that it may not be man that fulfills them, they still abide and remain intact 
after sin came into the world. Number three, these are universal commands, universal institutions for all of humanity. What I mean there is these are not Jewish, these are not Christian, but they're given to creation itself, to all of Adam's sons and daughters. And fourthly, they're given for the good ordering of culture or society. They're for our betterment and our blessing. I don't think it's a stretch to say that these mandates are are part of the very fabric of what it means to be a human person and to live in this world. They're, They're fundamental and basic to any culture in any society. And so they are pre-fall decrees. They are frustrated by the fall, but remain intact. They're universal to all men. They're not Jewish, Christian, and they're given for the better ordering of society and culture. So what are they? What are the creation mandates? Um, I'm going to list five. You might find sometimes this list is is a bit different, but I think this is the best breakdown. And so we're going to consider, number one, marriage. Number two, procreation. Be fruitful and multiply, very much tied to marriage. We're going to consider work or labor. That's number three. Number four, dominion. Very much tied to work or labor. And number five, Sabbath. Sabbath. Number five being the most controversial in different traditions in the church, but I think clearly a creation ordinance from before the fall. And so man images God. We're made in the image of God. We cannot escape that. And through these ordinances, we image God in various ways. Personhood and love is seen and shared in marriage. God's creative filling of the earth is seen as man fills the earth through procreation. The Lord's sovereign ordering and ruling of the earth is seen in man's taking dominion and subduing the earth. The Creator's Sabbath rest is seen as men rest and worship their Creator. And all of these are woven together. They do not stand on their own, right? We cannot divorce the command to be fruitful and multiply from the command to join one another in covenant marriage let me read to you a quote from a, a, a brother named Michael Munoz. He says, Not surprisingly, the ordinances of creation taken together form a unified whole. God commanded men to exercise dominion over all creation. Marriage was ordained to assist him in this task. God gave Adam a suitable or a corresponding helper fit for him. The fruit of that marital union is multiplication and children. With a family comes the task of training and raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This task, in part, constitutes humble submission and worship unto God, which reflects overall Sabbath principles. In addition, man, being mortal, needs rest and refreshment to carry out God's charge. He must also be exercised in the public worship of God. This he does one day in seven, a day instituted by God. And so you see all of these 
ordinances, they, they, they are woven together, one and another. They help and fuel and feed the other. Adam is called to be a vice king, a junior king under God, to take dominion over the earth. But he needs a helper, and they need helpers. And so he gives Adam a wife to help him in this task, but also to fulfill this mandate to be fruitful, which is helps in continuing to fulfill the mandate to take dominion over the earth and to rule it for the glory of God. And so we're going to begin today to talk about marriage. Firstly, I want to address the question of who is this sermon for? These sermons. This will take longer than one day to talk about marriage. (laughs) Um, So maybe you're here and you're widowed. Maybe you're here and you're very young. Maybe you're here and today you have no desire to get married. You're not really looking for that. That's not in your plan today. Maybe you're here and you are married. Maybe you're very encouraged today by the state of your marriage. Maybe you're banging your head against the wall trying to understand how can I be faithful to my spouse and love them as, as I should and obey the Lord or something in between. If, 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 if any of those touches you, or anyone else in the room, these sermons are for you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so all the Bible is for all the people of God. As he writes to Timothy and says that all Scripture is inspired and thus profitable for men, that we might be trained in righteousness, fully equipped or thoroughly furnished for every good Work And so this is not just a sermon series for those that are married today or looking to be married, but it covers the whole gamut of Christian experience. How, how might we be helped from a, a better biblical understanding of marriage? I have a few ideas. Maybe you're here today and you plan to one day marry. You hope to marry one day. Or maybe you're married now. But a better understanding of biblical marriage helps us to agree with God. We want to agree with God, amen? It's a simple principle for us as Christians, right? But we want to agree with God in every area that the Bible talks about. And the Bible talks about marriage and explains it to us. And so we want to think God's thoughts when it comes to marriage, amen? We want to have His understanding and understand it through His lens and His light because He has given it to us. And so a better understanding helps us to agree with God in His Word, Secondly, those that are here that are already married or those that are here that are widowed and have been married in the past or widowers, a better understanding of marriage will help you to be a better discipler and exhorter of those younger than you. Because God commands this of us, right? In Titus chapter 2, listen to what he says, especially here to the ladies Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, ladies, God has not given you the burden of, of... expounding scripture publicly. He's not giving you the burden of teaching systematic theology. 
He's given you the burden, though, of training up younger women, whether that be chronologically or by level of maturity, to pour into them the basics of what it means to be a godly woman. And yes, that will often include opening up your Bible in certain situations and saying, thus saith the Lord, especially in the home. But when someone asks us about marriage, I hope that we don't lead with all of our shortcomings and all of the troubles. We lead with the ideals, right? We lead with what God has said, and then we wed that to our own challenges because we are fallen and try to help those under us overcome some of those struggles and troubles that we have walked through. And so a better understanding of marriage will help those that are married or have been married more faithful in discipling the younger generation, a younger generation that we all, I think, would agree is very confused upon marriage and everything related to it. That brings us to number three. A better understanding of marriage gives us an apologetic for this culture in today's generation. We live in a generation and in a time where the world is completely confused about marriage, sexuality, gender, and everything that touches it. And we need, we need a word for this generation. We need a substantial word. It's not enough, brothers and sisters, to say, I think homosexuality is gross, and thus it's wrong. Right? We need to say more than that. We need to have a substantial apologetic as to why God says love is not love. Every love is not biblical love as God has commanded it. And so a more faithful understanding of what the Bible has communicated about a man and a woman cleaving together gives us a better word for this confused world we live in. And fourthly, a better understanding here gives us a better understanding and grasp of the gospel and Christ's marriage union to his redeemed. Because that's what marriage is a picture of, right, ultimately. It's a picture of the church's relationship to Jesus Christ. And it is a picture of our union with him and the eternity and glory that we'll spend with him. And so the more we can understand marriage, the more we can understand the antitype of marriage, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his union with his beloved. Now, this is the time where I give my disclaimer. I heard a quote a while back from John Piper that I think is helpful. He says, the preacher that only preaches to his own sanctification or his own maturity, preaches far too low. And what a pitiful pulpit ministry this would be if every week the preacher only preached to his own level of maturity or his own level of spirituality. And so I'm going to preach beyond myself today. And I aim to do that every single week because every text speaks beyond the current spiritual maturity of this man. I don't stand here and claim to be the authority who has mastered all of these principles, but I do very much stand here as a man who very much wants to see my life and my marriage more conformed to the Word of God, as I trust you do as well. This is not an excuse, though, for lack of faithfulness, as elders are called to be an example to the flock, and we hope to be that by the grace of God. And so we're going to think about marriage today. Firstly, some basics. Sadly, I'm sorry, but it's 2024. We're going to have to talk about some very basic things that are not very basic in our day. And then we're going to talk about the divine purpose of marriage. Why does God give humanity marriage here in the beginning of the Bible? And in the coming weeks, we're going to get very practical 
and look at the biblical duties for husbands and wives and what God has prescribed a marriage to look like. And so firstly then, basics. Now we're going very high level here, very simple. But firstly, number one, marriage is a sovereign institution of God himself. He defines it then. Marriage is not a cultural construct. It's not something that man at some point came up with. It's not something uh, that was an idea of some people a long time ago and has been carried over. But we might say that marriage is part of natural law. It's part of the light of nature. We see it universally in just about every culture that's ever existed. Now, it will most certainly look different in different cultures, specifically the ceremony and things connected to marriage. But the fundamentals... The basics are there. One man, one woman coming together, leaving all others to unite themselves one to another. Now, have fallen men distorted this institution? Of course they have. But nonetheless, this is something that God has decreed and given to men, and thus he defines it. We do not define what marriage is because it has been created by God and given to us as a blessing. Number two, and maybe even more basic than that, there are only two sexes, male and female. Now, I know this is, this is not a shocking thing for a room like this, um, but it's a sad state of affairs in our world that we live in that this even needs to be said. We know that there are many confused people in this world that are, are doing all sorts of things to their body to try to make themselves something that they are not, whether subtracting from the body or adding to the body, mutilating the body, taking chemicals and hormones to prevent things or to cause things to happen. But all of those that are in this confused state, if we dig up their remains in a hundred years, it will be very clear by their skeleton, this is either a man or a woman. If we look at the chromosomes, yes, these things can at times be corrupted because of the fall. We will see very clearly that whatever the body has put on, whatever the image is, it is very clear that there is either male or female. And we, again, live in a world that is radically confused about these things. And so we must, I think it's appropriate here to say, we must speak the truth in love on this subject in our day. The world tells us that that's offensive or wrong or inappropriate. We must reject that. And we must speak the truth in love. But notice there, I gave two statements there. The truth in love. And too often, as Christians, we have the tendency to neglect one or the other. We can speak the truth. We can get out the 50 cal and just start mowing people down and speak hard truth and feel that we're very bold and courageous. Sadly, this is the common norm on social media that we just want to blast folks with truth and say, hey, it needs to be said, and so here comes the truth. Now, now I, I will rightly admit that, that oftentimes speaking things in love is painful, and oftentimes it will be offensive to people. But I do believe that we can speak the truth in such a way that love is actually communicated in the way that we speak. This may be one of the big problems with 
the internet, is that you cannot see someone's eyes and hear their speech. We just blast memes at people. So we must speak the truth, but we cannot do so, or we must speak, we have to have both. And Christians err on the other side as well, where we want to abandon truth and just love people into the kingdom. Just love them as they are. Love them into the church. Love them to Jesus. And we just love them, which means never say anything about biblical commands or sin or about the peril of their soul. And we'll just be so loving and so accepting that they'll love the Jesus that we believe in and they'll come to have faith in him. When in reality, all too often, we love them straight to hell because we never tell them about the status, the terrifying status of their own soul. So we must speak the truth, but we must do so in love. And I think that our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the example here to tell us we can do both. We can speak hard truth, and we can do so in love. These things are not opposed to one another. Christians ought to be able to do them together. But as we look around at this age of gender confusion, I think it is right for us to be filled with a sense of righteous indignation. There ought to be, in our minds, I think, a holy hatred for the evil that we are seeing being pushed upon our children in this day. What would Jesus have done if he come back in this day to deal with the wickedness in our day? What did he say? If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and you be cast off into the ocean, plunged into the depth of the sea to be drowned. Just this past week, I saw a story of a, of a quote-unquote pastor who him and his wife were proudly telling the story that they were going to give their, their little boy puberty blockers and hormone chemicals because they wanted to spare this world from another man and spare him from toxic masculinity. We hear this title being thrown around, right? Toxic Masculinity. This is a satanic title trying to destroy the goodness of what it means to be a man. But at the same time, while we ought to have, I think, a true righteous indignation, we ought to also have a heavy sorrow for those captured by these ideologies. This is the air that our young people breathe today. And they're being told from every angle that this is good and righteous and virtuous. And those that would would want to hold to a biblical sexual ethic are being seen as antiquated and evil and bigoted and all the rest of it. So we ought to have a righteous indignation, but we ought to have a sorrow, I think, for those captured, a real burden for their souls. But beloved, we cannot shy away from the goodness of God's design. We can't let the culture beat us down to where we're fearful of speaking of the goodness of being a man and the goodness of being a woman. And so, brothers, it is right for you to be strong, to be, to be leaders, to be self-sacrificial, to be protectors, to be hard workers, to have humble, principled authority where God gives that to you. These are good virtues that God has bestowed upon men, that the Bible elevates. And ladies, it is good for you to have feminine beauty and meekness and modesty and gentleness. These are glorious virtues that the Bible exalts. Your innate desire to nurture and love and support 
ought to be praised, not torn down. There is a wicked lie in our world being communicated to our young people that, that it is bondage to serve a family and to serve a husband in the home, and it is freedom to serve a corporation and some other man that is not your husband, that freedom is found when you leave the home and bondage is found when you stay in the home. This is a satanic plot. It's a wicked agenda to thwart God's good design of male and female. So marriage is defined by God. There are only two genders, two sexes, male and female. Thirdly, then, marriage is for one man and one woman. Again, I know this is obvious here, but we're laying a foundation. This is God's institution, and so it is God's design. There is no other way that we can call something a marriage unless it's a male and a female. You know, I find it, I find it shocking, maybe you do too, that in 2008, it's not that long ago, 2008, the state of California voted to ban same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage. 2008, California, on the ballot, rejected anyone getting married that was not a male or a female. That is utterly impossible of happening on the entire West Coast today. Nonetheless, probably all 50 states. I don't know if there's any state that would come together and reject on a ballot same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage. And here we are 16 years later, and it's unthinkable that California would do such a thing. Things have moved very quickly. Despite, though, despite, and we need to acknowledge them, despite the many imperfect examples in the Bible of a marriage, when our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19, or when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 want to teach on the subject of marriage, they both directly cite Genesis 2.24. That a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is God's clear directive for marriage. While the Bible has many poor examples, i.e. men taking multiple wives to themselves, these texts are not prescriptive of what is acceptable. They are descriptive of what fallen men have done. But the standard in God's design is Genesis 2, 24, one man cleaving to one woman for their lives. Fourthly, then, the blessings of marriage are confined solely to this covenant union. Now, I know that this is an, an utter absurdity today in the broader culture, to tell someone that they should save themselves and keep themselves pure and wait for a husband or a wife. And maybe it's even a greater absurdity in our day that sexual activity should be confined to the marriage bed. This is ridiculous in our day for not just the young generation, but commonly in the world. And so let me just state unequivocally that all sexual activity that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage is sinful and abhorrent to God. And I want to read to you Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes 
one body with her. Now, he's using the example of a prostitute because this was the common, easy method of sexual immorality in their day. While we're not going to pretend that everyone was moral, it was culturally unacceptable to be promiscuous, so it was uncommon uh, for someone at least to be overtly, in an outward sense, sexually immoral. And so he uses the example of going to a prostitute. This would apply to anyone having relations outside of marriage. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin in a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These are strong words. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin happens externally. This one happens within. Listen to William Gouge, Puritan writing. I thought this was helpful. He's talking about adultery, but we could apply it to all forms of fornication. And he says, when we commit this sin, we do so against each person of the Holy Trinity. The Father, His covenant is broken. The Son, His members are made the members of a harlot. And the Holy Spirit, whose temple is made to be defiled. Paul goes so far to teach in 1 Corinthians 6 that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That if you live a lifestyle of sexual immorality, if that is your practice, you will be kept from heaven because you are not Christ. Those are Paul's words. But he also says you can be cleansed. And you can be made new. And you can be cleaned by the Spirit of God. So, boys and girls, you guys live in a world where you're going to be told many lies about what it means to be a boy and a girl. And you live in a world that rejects what God says about being a boy and a girl. But I love seeing natural law, common sense, written on the heart of children. Because I hear my own daughter who understands by nature when we're in this community and she sees a man in a dress that it is wrong and inappropriate that a man would look like a woman and that a woman would look like a man. This world will tell you crazy things, but you must reject the world's lies and agree with God, boys and girls. Young people, you live in a time where you're being pulled from both ends, right? The the air that you breathe, the world that you live in, from every single voice that we hear everywhere says reject marriage, reject purity, reject modesty, reject monogamy, And then you open up your Bible. And then you come to church. And there is one institution, the church, that is trying to proclaim God's good commands. You must reject the world's lies. And the question then for you, young or old, is will you agree with God? Or will you agree with this world? Because the world wants to convince you to steal from God. 
It wants you to convince you to take the good blessings that God has given to be used in the context of marriage and to take them as you please and use them at your own disposal and enjoy them how you want to enjoy them. Will you agree with God or will you agree with the passions of your flesh? And so those are some basics about marriage. It's defined by God. There is only male and female. The only true marriage is a man and a woman. And the blessings of marriage, of sexual relations, are to be confined only and exclusively to this covenant union. And so let's think about then for the rest of our time the purpose, God's purpose in marriage. Why does he give Adam and Eve this covenant in the garden and for then all of humanity? What's the point of it? For this study, from this point on, we're going to be leaning heavily on the Puritans and specifically on a man named William Gouge. William Gouge wrote a book called Domestical Duties. And this is back in the 1600s. And Dr. Beakey says, Joel Beakey says that the Puritans left us with some 28 or 29 books on marriage, but this one book outsold all of the rest. It was commonplace that when a Puritan minister would marry a couple, he would give them a copy of Gouge's Domestical Duties. And Joel Beakey and Scott Brown have republished this work in three volumes that you can get, modernized the language, very helpful, that you can get from RHB. Um, and so we're going to consider the threefold purpose of marriage. This idea, these ideas, they're taken from Genesis, but they were sort of being defined in the Reformation and in the post-Reformation, in the Puritan age, they were codified and given confessional status. So you can see them in the 1689 in paragraph 2 of chapter 25. I think it's on your bulletin. So let's turn back to Genesis 1 and consider God's purpose for marriage. What is the end, as they would say? What is the end of marriage? Firstly, Genesis 2 again in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Or in the Hebrew, woe man. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. I stole that. I know it was cheesy, but... But I think it captures his response. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's naming all the animals, and he sees all these pairs. He sees all these com companions and helpers, and there's none like him. He's naming orangutans and aardvarks and antelopes and all the rest of it. And then he sees this woman given to him, this gift and blessing of God. And so the first purpose of marriage is mutual help for living a godly life. Mutual help. 
God says it is not good for man to be alone. And so God blesses Adam, and he gives him a companion, a friend. The old word there, a helpmeet. The idea is that he finally has now a helper that is suitable for him, compatible with him, or fit for him. Again, he's naming all of the animals, he's naming all of God's creation, and there is no companion to be found. And then Adam is given this suitable helper, one that's fit to come alongside him in the work that God has called them now to do. And we see that there's sort of a, a, a complementary element of men and women coming together. He and she are the physical and emotional, that's a modern word, spiritual counterpart of one another. Right? Biologically, obviously, men and women fit together like a puzzle. It is natural. Folks in our day have to reject anatomy to try to reject this idea that there's more than male or female, to the absurdity to say, don't give my baby a gender based upon their biology. But it's very obvious how God has created man and woman to come together physically to consummate a marriage. But there's also a spiritual balancing that takes place, right, between a man and a woman. The man is sort of the strong protector, and sometimes our Weakness is to be overly strong and overly harsh and hard. And the woman is that loving nurturer, but she needs the strong leadership. And the man needs that warm affection. And so there's a balancing here. As we'll see as we get into later sermons in Ephesians chapter 5, it seems that Paul is, is very clearly addressing here our weaknesses. Right? The, the man is called to love the husband or to love the wife, because he has a tendency, because of the fall, to be a tyrant, to, to rule over her in a way that is harsh. And, and, and he needs that nurture, that affection. He needs that sort of soft touch. And the woman is, has a tendency to, to be loving and nurturing, but to, to, be, to, to lack submission, to want to rule herself or to not want to come under. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives, and wives, submit to your husbands, because he knows this is, the, this is the key point that the fall has frustrated our human relationships. But there's a counterbalance, a counterweight that is happening here in these two makeups as God has generally made men and women. Now, someone can always raise their hand and try to give an exception, but it's the exception that proves the norm and proves the rule. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, God has given Adam one of the same nature, the same rank of being, a help to be near to him, one to cohabit with him and to be always at hand, a help before him, one that he should look upon with pleasure and delight. And so God in his kindness has given Adam a companion, a lifelong friend, an ally to labor alongside, to, to walk through the toils and troubles of life, to encourage and help for their mutual sanctification. Now, I've often said that one of the most sanctifying 
things that God has given us is marriage. And I don't say that to be funny or to make light of things. But there are very many character weaknesses that one might have that are hard to discern when one is on their own. But when you share a bed and a home and a bank account and all of these things with another human being, sometimes very quickly your own selfish tendencies can be exposed. And then if God decides to give children in the picture, there is more sanctifying that is taking place with little ones running around testing patience. And so there is mutual benefit in all these different ways. Help, but also in sanctifying one another. Listen to how Gouge, William Gouge says it. He says, they are mutual help to one another to bring forth children, to nurture and raise those children in the fear of the Lord, for well-governing of the family and well-governing of the home, to be a help in managing prosperity well, but also to be a help in bearing adversity well, to help in sickness and to help in health. And so God has given this, this institution to mankind for, for companionship, for mutual help, for the upbuilding and betterment of one another, but also for the upbuilding then of society. Now we know that our world today rejects this idea in many ways, right? We seem in our day to see selfishness as a virtue. That you ought to be selfish. You ought to focus on yourself. We see this idea of self-care. I don't like that language of self-care. It's just all about what do I need, right? Me time. Now it's fine. Everyone needs some time alone to reflect, what have you. But there's so much me focus, me time, man caves. It's all about me. It's all about myself. It's all about meeting my needs. But God said it was not good for man to be alone. Now, the question some might ask is, does this mean that God commands everyone to be married? Is there any exclusion here? And there is exclusion. So no, God does not command everyone to be married. Some are born eunuchs. And so they are unable to consummate marriage. Some, are, some become eunuchs for the kingdom of God, for the service of the Lord. Some are given the gift of celibacy and singleness. But we need to understand these things biblically, right? Because the Bible's view of the gift of celibacy and singleness is the exact opposite of the world's view of these things. The world says, be single and do what you want. Have fun. Indulge yourself. You don't want those responsibilities. You're only 35. Why would you think about getting married now? Live your life. Maybe get married at some point in the future. But to be single is to be free. That's what the world says. But the Bible's gift of singleness and celibacy is the opposite. Providentially, in my reading today, Am I just reading through the New Testament right now? I came to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is the key text that talks about singleness and the gift of singleness. And it seems when you read that text, you could discern or you could make the case that Paul is saying it's better to be single than it is to be married. He makes a strong case. He spends a lot of time saying, I wish you were like me. But his aim in all of that is not so that you can fulfill yourself or you could have your own desires. His aim is that one could be wholly and solely devoted to Christ. What he says is marriage is going to cause other troubles 
or other burdens and concerns that a person does not have when they're not married. And so when they're not married, they can completely be focused upon Jesus. The world says don't get married so you can be completely focused on yourself and your flesh. So sometimes we wrestle with, I was helped this week thinking through this, we wrestle with this idea of the gift of celibacy or the gift of marriage. And I think we ought to look at these things like this. Your current circumstance is God's gift to you. Whatever that is, if we trust the providence of God, the working of the Lord, where He has us in this life, unmarried, married, widowed, widower, that's God's gift. And gifts in the Bible are used for the service of others, not for self. They're meant to be a blessing to others. They're meant to bring glory to God and be for the betterment of others. And God may for a lifetime, or He may for a time, give the gift of joyful, content, singleness, but we must reject the world's view that this is all about focusing on me and serving myself. I saw a wonderful example of, of this contented singleness. I'm going to share this story because she's not here and will never listen to this sermon. But when I went to Kentucky a couple months ago, last month, um, there's, a, there's a lady there in the church that is probably in her 60s. Um, she was converted in her 30s, so later in life, never married, uh, was hopeful to marry, but kind of just gave up that it wasn't the Lord's will. And she uh, had a business and had a, a decent home, nothing major, a normal family home. But she saw an opportunity to serve. And so she built a studio, if you will, in her garage. She converted her garage to her own little room. And she opens up the rest of the house for guests and visitors. And so the church that she's at has a seminary. And there's often guest teachers, guest students coming through and so she has opened up her home to, to serve her church. And she's zealous to serve the church. She was up 5.30 every day making us bacon and eggs. Exactly how you wanted your eggs and your bacon dialed in. What kind of toast. I mean, she was a servant. But it was a blessing to see this contented singleness being used. Not to just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a vacation. But not to just go out and do whatever she wanted but to serve the local church. She was zealous to be hospitable to her church in every way that she could as God had given her the ability. And I thought that was just a beautiful picture of the gift of celibacy, the gift of singleness being exercised for the glory of God and for the benefit of the local church. And so God has given marriage for companionship. Secondly, we read then in verse 28 again of chapter 1, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the second purpose of marriage is the procreation of children, that the world might be increased. Now, this is obviously a basic fundamental need of our race. That if there was no charge to have children and there was no motivation to have children, then Adam and Eve's family would have not got very big and would have not lasted very long. And so there's just a basic fundamental necessity for humanity to continue that men and women will marry and have children. And we know the stats today, I'm sure, that, that people are having less and less and less children. I think South Korea just hit the peak at 
the, the average woman will have 0.7 children in her life. Less than one for every person. And we, we know today that it seems to be common that, that, that modern man looks down upon a large family. Maybe it's irresponsible, maybe it's even immoral to have a bunch of children in this day. And I just saw the other day online, someone was touting the numbers, supposed numbers of what it costs a year to raise a child. As if we're going to look at that and say, oh yeah, I don't want to blow 20 grand on a kid, I'm going to just serve myself, forget having children. But God has given marriage to be as the Lord provides. God opens the womb. And God closes the womb. That needs to be said. It's something that I think is not in our mindset today as we have a scientific medical mind. We only focus on those things that are certainly a key factor. But the Bible talks about God closes the womb and God opens the womb. This is something that He does. He gives children or He does not. That's His prerogative. But God has given marriage to be a sanctified, legitimate place where children can be brought into the world and trained in the ways of God. Listen to Genesis 18, speaking of Abraham in verse 19. It says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So Abraham has a charge that is given to this family that the Lord blesses him with, that he is to pass on the faith. He is to train his children. Listen to how William Gouge puts it. He says, God has given marriage and the command of procreation that the world might be increased with a legitimate brood, with legitimate children raised up, not out of wedlock is what he means, and distinct families which are the nurseries of cities and commonwealths also that the church might be preserved and propagated in the world by a holy seed. Now let's think about this for a minute. Maybe it needs to be said that Gouge is a Presbyterian and he has a bit different way of looking at children than we do. They see every child of a believer being in covenant with God, not being saved, but in a different status than we understand. But I think in practice we're not that far off. Gouge says that families are a nursery for cities or commonwealths. We might say it in our way, in our day like this, a family is the preschool and training ground for the nation, for the city. It is where faithful citizens are reared and raised. So this is, this is their mindset. This is their way of thinking. Do you want to see your city bettered? Do you want to see your state bettered? Do you want to see this nation return to something more godly? Then have children. Raise them up in Christ. Teach them to obey His law and how to be God-fearing, gospel-loving citizens. There are many Christians in today, oftentimes that have a more pessimistic view of the world, a pessimistic view of the outlook of the kingdom of God in this age that think the world is just progressively going to get worse and worse that think kids should stop that Christians should stop having children that it's immoral to bring kids into this world because of all the sin but these men saw things in the exact opposite light 
that it is the godly children of godly families that is going to turn the world back to the Lord. If we stop having children, we give the nation to the pagans or to the Muslims that are having kids at a way greater pace than we are. And so he applies this to the church. Children are given to families that the church might be preserved and propagated in the world by a holy seed. Now they're leaning on a text. It's, it's either Malachi, I think it's Micah. Malachi or Micah 2.15. And it says, speaking about marriage, it says, what does the Lord desire? He desires a godly offspring or a godly seed. And so I ask you, beloved, in regards to the church, are you desirous to see the church grow? Are you desirous to see the church more and more multiplied with godly believers? Then Guj would say, the Puritans would say, raise up godly seed. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and fill the pews and train those children to love Jesus and to love the church. And we know that salvation is of the Lord, right? We know that just because we have kids, they're not going to be faithful Christians. But we can have faith that God is pleased to bring children into Christian, God-fearing families because he wants them to be under the word. And so I think there's a warning for us here, parents, those of you that have children, that we want to be very careful how we speak about Christ's church and Christ's people in front of our children. It can be very easy to be frustrated and vents or to, to get to gossiping, and we think that this has little impact on the little ears that are around us. But we want them to hear not our fallen frustration, about the church of Jesus Christ, but we want them to have a proper view of the glories and blessings of the local church. And we can taint that with all of our moaning and complaining about people or things that are happening. Thirdly then, let's look at chapter 2, now verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thirdly, the purpose of marriage is a sanctified place for the expression of sexual desire. Gouge calls this marital chastity. This is what he says. God has given marriage that men might avoid fornication and possess their vessel in holiness and honor. It is in man's corrupt nature to lust. And this purpose of marriage adds much honor to the marriage. It shows that marriage, listen to this, marriage is a haven to those who are in jeopardy of their salvation through the gust of temptation and lust. It is a safe, sacred, holy, sanctified place where sexual desire can be expressed in a God-honoring, God-exalting way. He says, no sin is more hereditary than Adam's, in Adam's fallen children than the sin of sexual sin. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which he alluded to there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 this is the will of God. Now, maybe you've sat there at night in the long night saying, God, what is your will for me? Well, we can know for sure it is at least this, 
This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. God has given one place, the marriage bed, where sexual desire is to be expressed. Again, this is a holy, sanctified place where this joyful duty of husband and wife can be done in a way that honors the Lord. Maybe it needs to be said here that in his day, this is a radical teaching for them to teach about marriage in this way. Number one, that it was about friendship and companionship. And number two, that God has given sexual activity to husband and wife as a blessing for them to enjoy. In his day, it had become, uh, marriage was seen in a very different light. Marriage was seen as something that needed to happen so children could be brought into the world. But the union, the consummating of that marriage was always seen as a sinful act, even in the context of a covenant marriage, to the point that the priesthood was forbidden to marry. And Roman Catholic priests today are still forbidden to marry. Virginity and celibacy was glorified as the peak way that one can truly honor God. And sex between a husband and wife was seen as something that would always be tainted by sin, but was necessary for the rearing of children. So much so, shockingly so, Joel Beakey points out, that, that, mar- that, that marriage and intimacy in a marriage is looked down upon to the point that within the priesthood, having a mistress was more accepted than having a wife that one was committed to. The priests, even popes, had mistresses and everyone just looked the other way. And Dr. Beakey, when he teaches on this, he pulls out 1 Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says that in the latter days, men will come teaching doctrines of devils, and one of those will be the forbidding of marriage. That's how bad the Bible views. And, and we see what's happened. We see the, that when you, when you wrongly forbid someone from partaking in something that God has given as a gift, our flesh will often act out and will find an outlet anyways. And so God has given this institution to be a safe haven for those, as Goosh says, that wrestle with the gusts of temptation and lust. So if you're here today, young or old, and you burn with passion and lust, as Paul says, the answer is not to fulfill that passion, as the world would say, sow your wild oats or just enjoy yourself. The answer is to pursue a spouse, to honor God, and to honor your body by only fulfilling those desires in their rightful place. As Paul says, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, the marriage bed is a safe haven for those that wrestle with temptation and lust. Oh, that our world this day would heed the wisdom of God and the wisdom of these Puritans. Instead of the common practice being men and women giving themselves to many partners before they maybe decide to commit and to be married, but to pursue 
holiness and virtue here in the pursuit of a godly spouse where this this righteous desire can be fulfilled in a righteous way. That's not the common practice today. But young people, I would imagine there are adults in this room that in a candid moment would explain to you the devastation and destruction not waiting for a husband and and a wife brings to the soul of a man or a woman. What that does as we give ourselves to someone and not our spouse and then do so over and over, there is things that happen in that union that, that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot take back. And those things are only to be given exclusively to a husband or a wife. So God has given five creation mandates. The first two being marriage and procreation. Obviously, these are to be woven together. It was not good. God said for Adam to be alone, and we read that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And the divine purposes of marriage, as we've seen, are the mutual help and edification of one another, the procreation of children, for the betterment of society and the church, and a sanctified place to express sexual desire and prevent uncleanness or sin. And as we continue in the coming weeks, we'll take up, then we'll dive into the biblical duties of husbands and wives. Let's pray.